what if I offered to promote these venture funds to limited partner investors who would invest in them in exchange for which they would make a pledge to invest more into female founders? Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Shelly Porges, founder of Beyond the Billion. Shelly launched the Billion Dollar Fund for Women in 2018 to drive investment in women-owned and women-founded companies. She achieved her original goal earlier than expected and continues to solicit additional pledges to support women founders. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Shelly, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. It is so great to have you with us today. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. So I would love for our audience to get to know you a bit better and to really understand your career background. So can you walk us through that? You know, Let us know about your career highlights and what got you to this point. Yeah, happy to. And thank you for asking. I've been really blessed to have a multi-sectoral career. I, I sometimes get asked, well, how did you plan that? And the reality is no one plans a career like I've had. It's obviously being open to new opportunities that makes a difference and preparing as best you can for those opportunities and going forth with conviction, as with everything in life, right? So, you know, my multi-sectoral career really started out uh, in the corporate world where I spent my first 10 years after graduate school both my undergraduate and graduate degrees at Cornell, and then uh, you know started with ten years at American Express, where I went from junior product manager all the way up to uh, being the uh, executive head of marketing for Canada, which was our largest card market outside the U.S. at the time. So that was quite exciting for me at a, a young age of thirty-two. I, a couple of years later, was recruited then by Bank of America initially as head of credit card marketing, but I didn't last uh, more than two and a half months there because I then got promoted to head up marketing for the entire retail bank. And I was fortunate enough then when I was recruited to become part of a turnaround team that led really largest turnaround at the time in American corporate history uh, that was not government aided. And we brought it about within 18 months of when this turnaround team was essentially assembled. And I, for a long time, had wanted to start my own company. But when I got the opportunity at Bank of America, I couldn't turn it down. It was just too big an opportunity to say no to. And it was a lesson in leadership, too, I will add, that you know when you find someone you consider to be talented and, and bring special things to the table in terms of what you're trying to accomplish, to absolutely support them, promote them, advance them in every way possible. Uh, whether or not the resume or the age or any other factor would seem to you know, suggest that they're not ready. Moved on from there, and then I did leave after three years to start my first six uh, businesses in, in the Bay Area. I lived in San Francisco, and uh, you know, five of them with successful exits, five of them were in financial services, one was a media company. After that, moved to D.C., where I started for the very first time getting involved politically when Hillary Clinton declared for president. I, you know, of course, had exited my last of six businesses by then and uh, started, as I said, getting involved and very quickly became, you know, a really active, I'll say, fundraiser for her and supporter of hers in many ways and ultimately went with her to the State Department as her senior advisor for global entrepreneurship, which was an unbelievable experience. Uh, I, I usually describe it as both the most frustrating and the most rewarding job I've ever had. 
<laughs> all together at once, I can imagine. You know, it was challenging, very different than the entrepreneurial world. And yet, when my friends said, well, what's it like being an entrepreneur at the State Department? I said, well, let's put it this way. You never take no for an answer and you're nothing if not resourceful. So it's not a bad fit from that point of view right. uh, and that you persist. And, and if you are good at building teams and you're good at communicating and good at building bridges, then, you know, you can make it work. And that's that's really what, you know, we did. And I, I was lucky to find some really um, wonderful colleagues who were mission aligned, let's say, in terms of wanting to promote entrepreneurship. I always used to say entrepreneurship is the best part of the American brand. And we made it a central part of the State Department's economic uh, diplomacy agenda. The embassies loved it. In the State Department, that's the key to being successful. We grew the program that we called, it was a new program called Global Entrepreneurship Program. We grew it to almost 150 countries with over 100 public-private partnerships to support the embassies in a whole array of kinds of offerings, as well as many of the other departments and offices at the State Department itself supporting our efforts with great enthusiasm because they realized that when they did, the embassies were also happy with them. You've had a really robust career from the corporate sector to entrepreneurship to government. And as you said, you know, you can't really ever imagine this or plan this as you go in. When you were making really big changes from one sector to another, whether that was the corporate sector to entrepreneurship or to the public sector, how did you get your head around doing things a different way, joining into a new sphere and learning things that you might not have known from prior jobs? Well, I, I mean, I think the central consistent element across the, the, you know, all of that was trying to identify where your talents lie and tap the opportunities that help leverage your talents and then getting amazing people around you who do other things or even things that you think you do well, do them even better, <laughs> you know, get them all together and working to make big things happen. I think the other thing that really, when I look back, even as a kid, and I think about things that I did as a kid, I was always an entrepreneur. My dad was an entrepreneur. My dad was a solo businessman. And, and you know, I think back about different things that excited me and things that I did organizationally as, you know, you know, youth organizations and things like that. I feel like I was always entrepreneurial. I was looking for those opportunities, often things that people never thought of or didn't see. And that, that was all of that was really key in, you know, bigger and bigger ways as I moved ahead in my career. But I think as important as recognizing your own value add or and making an effort to add value is recognizing the value add that everybody else around you has because nobody gets anything big done without you know other people and, and teams of other people. So you may you know you bring your special sauce, but you know you can't really have that full smorgasbord until everybody else brings their special sauce. So bringing that entrepreneurship back to what you're currently doing, you're the founder of the Billion Dollar Fund for Women. Can you tell us about that? What's the fund's mission and why did you start it? Well, you know, over these many years, not just when I worked for Secretary Clinton and, and beyond, but over these many years, uh, the other you know consistent theme in my life has been being involved in any number of organizations uh, that have supported women and girls in so many different ways. And, you know, in the more recent times, I would, you know, of course, there was the Global Entrepreneurship Program, and we had some very special and very successful initiatives for women entrepreneurs all over the world. You know, I think that certainly made a difference. Tell us about the moment where you really wanted to create a fund then for women. The inspiration for the Billion Dollar Fund for Women was, of course, the many female founders I worked with over the years through 
my work at the Cartier Women's Initiative, which is the largest women's business plan competition in the world. And out of that competition, not only in North America, where I was the president of the North American jury, but in other countries, we all came together, the regions of the world came together at the end for the final pitches. And I would see women from all over the world innovating amazing uh, technology or tech-enabled businesses and uh, that were helping people in the healthcare sector or, you know, any number of things, saving lives, you know, educating more and more young people, creating jobs and so on and so forth, things that we really, really need in the world, you know, cleaning water, providing transportation, all of the above. And then afterwards, I would try to help get them funded, especially the North American ones, because that's the jury that I was on. And so I knew those companies intimately. And not being able to find them funding would drive me nuts. So when I came back to the private sector after the 2016 election, I knew I wanted to focus on this if it was still an issue. And guess what? It still was. Uh, It really was sad that not only had we not moved ahead, in some ways we'd gone actually backwards because more and more capital had come into the venture ecosystem and into venture capital, but women were not getting their proportionate share of it. And as such, effectively, they were getting, you know, less proportionately, even though the dollar amounts might have been slightly more. So in 2017, women were only getting 2.2% of all venture capital. And even if you added in any company with even one female founder on it, it was only another 10%, which means that 88% of all venture capital was going to all white male teams. And again, nothing against them. Some of our greatest innovations have come from white men. You know, hey, listen, let's be clear. But part of the reason we all know about all these great innovations is because they got capitalized. Right. And you don't know about the things that didn't get funded because guess what? They died on the vine as a result. And again, important, important technology. So, so that was the starting point of the, and the inspiration for us wanting to, as we called it, our tagline was fueling women-led innovation. Beyond that, the opportunity that emerged to do something about it, I had started working with some individual venture funds, not very successfully, I might add, to try to get them to commit to do more. And then I found out through a friend who's a prominent Asian businesswoman that the World Bank was going to host its annual meetings in Bali. And at that time that she was going to mobilize a blended finance forum around the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. These are the goals that were established by the UN, I believe it was in 2014 or 15, that said if we could achieve these 17 goals, we would take essentially take the world out of poverty, eliminate hunger. And they have been the guideposts for all impact and ESG programs ever since. So this blended finance forum was meant to mobilize capital providers around these different initiatives, around these different goals. And at the time, she had no project partner for number five, which is gender equality. She had lined up project partners for all the rest of them. And I said, gender equality, that's what I care about. And I said to her, Sherry, you can't exclude inclusion. That's the whole point. And she said, no, I don't want to, but I haven't found anyone to meet our parameters. I said, well, send your, me your parameters and I'll see what I can do. I know a lot of people. So send me the parameters. And meanwhile, uh, I started getting obsessed with this notion. What if I offered to promote these venture funds to limited partner investors who would invest in them in exchange for which they would make a pledge to invest more into female founders? And that's where it all started. So called her back after the obsession prevented me from sleeping, <laughs> called her back, which is a good thing if you're trying to call Singapore 
because, you know, 12, 14 hours difference, depending on the time of the year. And, and I said, look, I have this idea, the billion dollar fund for women. I would love to launch it at your event at the World Bank meetings, if you let me. And we will, you know, I have a now partner that I've partnered up with. And we will, Sarah Chen, amazing, from Malaysia, actually from nearby, not far from Bali. And we will launch this and we will do our best to mobilize the first hundred million. I can't promise it because we only have two months, but we'll do our best, whatever it takes. And she said, great, I love the idea. Please do it. Great. So now she had a project partner for number five and we were off and running. And the PS on the story, insane as it was, insane though that number seemed to be, we not only mobilized the hundred million by the time we got to the World Bank meetings, and believe me, there were many doubters, including ourselves, but you know, we went ahead and tried to do it anyway. By the time we got to the World Bank meetings, we had over $460 million pledged from initially 23 funds. So the beginning of our what we call our global consortium of funds. And we knew we we had hit on something that could really make a huge difference. And and in under nine months, we achieved and then surpassed the billion dollars. Wow. That's incredible. That's a, such a great lesson in set forth that goal. And you'll be you know my, very surprised when you actually reach it, but put it out there. Because if you fail, at least you're probably more toward it uh, than you would have been otherwise. So Shelly, you announced the fund and you already had over $400 million toward that billion dollar goal, which is unbelievable. And you've actually achieved that billion dollar fund. You've raised that money or, or in terms of pledges for women. Did you raise that faster than you thought? Yeah, it was so much faster. We literally, if you looked at our initial website, which we had to change very quickly, it said that we looked to mobilizing the billion dollars over a decade. And we did it in under nine months. It was a two-year pledge campaign granted. And the dollar amount that was pledged was meant to be deployed, that is invested into female founder companies within two years, which is, again, a very short time frame for venture funds. We mobilized it in you know under nine months, uh, and then we knew what now. And people were saying, "What now? Two billion, ten billion? And we you know very quickly realized two things: one, why cap it? If we can drive change with a pledge campaign, my goodness, let's keep going. And therefore, beyond the billion, that's why we renamed it Beyond the Billion. The billion dollar fund for women was actually our, our initial two year pledge campaign, twenty eighteen through the end of twenty twenty. Beyond the billion is two things: one this new pledge campaign, which is a four-year campaign, now that we had confidence that we were, were going to be lasting, as so meant to be fully deployed by the end of 2023. But also, and as importantly, we realized the real key to creating sustainable change in the venture industry was to engage the limited partner investors who invest in funds to the effort as well. Because without them, there is no sustainability that the venture funds can make a one-time pledge campaign, complete their pledges, and then it's over. So I'm curious, as you went out there to seek these pledges from fund managers, what was the main value that they saw in this effort? The real reward and why they joined us, everybody says, well, why would they sign up? What was it? Well, one, it was they wanted to be part of a larger mission. And those who signed up with us were really excited about the idea that this was going to be a big global effort and it has been. And we are literally today on every continent except Antarctica, of course. The other thing is that getting those limited partner investors involved as well into the campaign so that they would make commitments to invest into the funds that invest in women creates a virtuous cycle. 
And that was really always part of the initial vision. It wasn't just to drive the VCs because I was looking around when I was looking for solutions and thinking, this doesn't make any sense. Trillions of dollars are being invested in the private markets. LOMPS, women are also inheriting trillions of dollars. We're living through the greatest wealth transfer we'll be seeing in our lifetimes with women getting a disproportionate share because boomer women generally inheriting from their boomer husbands who predeceased them and then boomer parents to their children. And as such, women, you know, the in the US alone, it's estimated to be over 30 billion, of which women expect to get 22 billion of that. And why? Because of the disproportionate transfer of I'm sorry, trillion. I said billion. Trillion. So it's insane that, you know, there is not, we don't need trillions. We only need a small fraction to change the world for women. Women were getting 2.2 billion when we started. So that that's really what we were trying to do is create change, create it in a real way, and then create it in a sustainable way and bringing in the LP. So that is what we have been doing since that time. And then happy to report also that in uh, last year, we did, of course, go back to our funds to track how they did with the, the commitments. And despite COVID, COVID a time when women, including women fund managers, were really having a hard time uh, raising capital, especially in 2020, last year was better, that over $638 million, the first two years, over $638 million was invested of that money into almost 800 female-founded companies globally. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. And what has been the performance of some of those companies? Do you track even below that and how they're doing? Yes. Oh, yes. So first of all, in that pool or among the portfolio, uh, we have 11 female-founded unicorns. That's very disproportionate to what you would find in a normal group of 800 companies. And we have many others rapidly accelerating to that point as well. Also, we found that women continue to outperform all male teams, all male, all female founded teams and gender diverse teams even more so with earlier exits and higher valuations per dollar invested. So all of those things being great news for investors, obviously. And it's a message that we, uh, of course, promote. So when we launched beyond the billion to uh, pull in the LP investors into the funds, the funds were already experiencing this, you know, we even switched our tagline. The Billion Dollar Fund for Women tagline was fueling women-led innovation, because at the heart of it, that is our mission. Beyond that, though, we realized when we switched to Beyond the Billion, we were talking to uh, limited partner investors, institution, including institutional investors who have mandates by all kinds of you know, legal organizations and others, pension funds that are managing you know, retirement funds and so forth. We understood that their first mandate is returns. And the good news is, so is ours, because we know that returns. So we changed it. We even changed our tagline to say driving returns through diversity to recognize that that's the primary focus. Our focus is fueling women-led innovation. Their focus is driving returns through the diversity. And the good news is you can do both of those things all at once. And so do you think the LPs, just to start there with the key stakeholder, are looking then for more diverse founders to be able to support, and they're going to ask the fund managers to also do the same? I mean, can they leverage amount, a good amount of influence to get that done? Yeah, there's no question. It's very clear to us that more and more LPs are looking for diversity. And that, that goes for individual high net worth investors, for family offices, for institutional investors in particular, because you know, for, for many of them, they're representing a broad swath of diverse individuals. And so there's increasing pressure on them. So we see that in university endowments that are announcing more and more of them are announcing that they are 
deploying and, and allocating to uh, funds run by even diverse managers and so forth. So all of the above is happening. The entire system is very slowly, but very definitely getting more diversified. So we believe that our timing was very good. The opportunity is still huge for diversification and that that diversification will lead to a healthier and higher performing venture ecosystem. What do you counsel female founders themselves when they're going out there to try to raise money? You know, we've heard so many founders run into the difficulties of raising money or getting questions that maybe male founders wouldn't get or their networks aren't as extensive. So how do you counsel the female founders themselves to be more effective at the fundraising piece? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when we, when we do our work, we look at uh, the things that are impediments are things, both personal biases as well as systemic biases. And we always say we, we can hope for change with personal biases when people see the, the way women perform, that that would change it. But we can work to deconstruct the systemic biases and reconstruct more inclusive programs. And that's what we have been working on. Having said that, what the female founders themselves can do is, first of all, be really knowledgeable. Do your homework. Know who you're reaching out to. In our case, if they reach out to us, what they could find on our website is the over 100 funds, over $100 million funds and under $100 million funds. So depending on the stage of the company, we have filters on there for all of our funds. So you can filter what's your sector, stage, and geography. So as an initial starting point, you don't have to look at all 100 funds. They won't all be right for every company. But find those funds, the subset of funds that are a good match for you on those three essential elements. Go to the subset that aligns with you and then read up on the funds. Do your homework. Find out what else they've invested in. Also see what they say on the website in terms of what their mission is, what, you know, what they look for. And, and, and don't limit yourself, of course, to the funds on our portfolio. The, the, the main advantage of the ones on our website is they've all pledged to invest into women. Oh, and P.S., they virtually all have. And so, and they're seeing the benefits of it. And so they're doing more and more of it. One Asian fund, Gobi Partners, did pledge. Not only did they agree to share the fact that they were making a $50 million pledge across two years in, invested in Southeast Asia, which is like 100 to 150 here in the US. It's a hard to deploy that amount in a short amount of time. And they did it. They met their pledge. And now they're launching their own female fund, which is like so amazing. And we celebrate them and celebrate others like them who have recognized that this is really great for their business as well as good for you know the ecosystem. So Shelly, what lasting impact do you think the fund has had for women-led businesses? I think that it's had a number of different impacts on women-led businesses. And as importantly, the impact it's had for all of us, because again, the women who are getting this funding are solving some of our greatest challenges, everything from you know, creating a human organ out of a patient's own stem cell. My God, it's saving lives to a whole array of things across the spectrum of you know, business solutions, you know, health solutions, education solutions, and doing it globally. So it's not just those of us who are so privileged to be in high developed countries, but doing it across the spectrum. For the women themselves, the impact has been material. Last year, 2021, we saw an over 70% increase in funding for women. And we're proud to have been a significant portion of that. We believe that not only have we inspired funds that have pledged to us, but we've inspired lots of other players to recognize the opportunity 
that is represented by investing in diverse founders uh, and investing in diverse led businesses. The opportunity not just to sort of mitigate risk, if you will, diversify the portfolio in that way, but also for returns. I loved it when, you know, our very first signatory in Canada when we launched in 2018 was a guy leading his own fund. And then he offered to mobilize some VCs for us. And when he did, he said to them, let's face it, women are the most undervalued asset in the world. You know, for so many of the VCs, whether they're male or female, and of course, Many of them have children. Some of them have daughters. Although I said, this, this is important for your daughters and your sons. Take it from somebody who's got two daughters and two sons. It's important for all of us to you know, create this more equitable ecosystem so that everyone can realize their full potential. It's something certainly I learned at the State Department when I was often asked, why is the U.S. investing in entrepreneurship around the world? And, and Secretary used to say, Secretary Clinton used to say, talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And P.S., that's not just true globally. That's true in our, obviously true in our own country, sadly more and more so. And, uh, you know, we like to think that entrepreneurship really creates some of those opportunities for those who don't otherwise have them. And in fact, we see that to be true. There's a very definitely a disproportionate share of immigrant Americans or immigrants, period, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem as founders and within so much more. I myself came to this country when I was five years old with my family. It's part of the story that we're creating opportunities for those who might not otherwise have had them. I think that the impact is far beyond pure dollars. The other aspect of it is women have, we can see it every day, have grown to have more and more conviction around their initiatives. We used to hear a lot that, you know, oh, women lack confidence, they need to be mentored, they need to be, you know, supported, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is not, not the women we're seeing. How does Beyond the Billion promote intersectionality in business funding and even beyond? So we don't in any way, stage or form claim these things, but I can share with you some of the things we've done. You know, we don't claim that we're the solution for these things, but certainly try to be part of the solution. Uh, First of all, we did build an ecosystem partners program and integrated everything from HBCUVC, where there are a lot of students who are seeking to get into the venture industry, you know, and seeking to be part of programs and or internships and other things. So, So that there's that. You know, working with uh, various organizations, uh, one of which we have huge respect for that I think is doing perhaps the most work in it is Gender Smart. You know, Suzanne Beagle and her team, now they're about to merge with 2X and uh, just all the work they've done around, you know, gender and climate change and gender and, and other diverse populations, et cetera. So, and finally, you know, having funds ourselves that are focused on ensuring that there's capital for underserved founders. It has been so thrilling to work with founders and fund you know, VCs globally, as well as limited partners, because we really see the interconnectivity and how the world not only connects globally, but benefits globally. What is the one thing you hope listeners take away from our conversation? Every single one of us can think big and can use whatever we have, whatever resources and and networks we have to create change in whatever corners of the world we are. So really encourage people to think big. Secondly, the future is for us to get closer and closer to the capital allocation process. And we are now working even more closely with capital allocators to ensure 
that this ecosystem continues to be built out and is more and more robust and is also funding the future that we would like to see. The closer we get to it, the, and the more impact we can have, the more excited we are. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And uh, we at Beyond the Billion really appreciate what you do in helping spread the word and, you know, hopefully encourage people to do, you know, what they're meant to do, which is what we believe we're doing. Thank you. Shelley has infused a new focus on female-founded companies in the venture capital world. I am so excited about the progress she's seen, and I believe the success of these companies will continue to fuel a more diverse business landscape. My appreciation goes out to Shelley, the venture capitalists, and the limited partners who are continuing to seek out female-owned, diverse businesses to invest in. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com forward slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. 